I mean, David, I'm an alcoholic. It's a pleasure to be back in Cincinnati. It has been eight years. We've been trying to see that I can carry those and others. Uh, if you didn't have your committee, George, I think you, George, and thank you all for your invitation. Robert, thank you for hosting us. Uh, Jim, thank you for uh, your message. Uh, very important message for me. And you got someone tomorrow night. And she's right here on the second row. She was the love of my life. Her name is Liz. And Liz, I just, I'm sorry I can't be here, but please, everybody, hear this message. She's got a phone call. Yeah, we have been presented as one of by the grace of God, And you have to smile and say, I'm fine. How are you? 
I'm fine. I'm fine, Liz. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm just fine. If you don't do that, state law requires the doctor to say you're it's just a state law. But you gotta wait. I'm fine, I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I had to be fine. I'm gonna put fine in. Fine is a fine art. I perfected it to a fine art. I'm just fine. Because see, if you knew that I wasn't fine, somehow that wasn't okay. And then I wouldn't be alone. But I, I could pretend. I could pretend. It's like temple and time. We're just little boys. We could pretend to be okay. And as long as I kept trying to be okay and really stayed ahead of current, I, I had to be out there. I had to keep thinking. Well, now, if I see her, I've got to say this. And if she says this, I got to say, see, I had to find her. I like Well, I took exams for her. Anybody, if you laugh, you understand what I'm talking about. I'd take it, and then I'd, about a week or two before, and then I'd take it a couple of days before, and right before I'd take it, then I'd actually take these things. But emotionally, I'd go through that all the time. The earliest thing I had with child, I was sitting in the back seat of my car, of my parents' car. I was, I think, six or seven, I'm not sure. My brother Larry was out of me, and my mother pointed to me and she said, when we get to Aunt Sue, don't you ask for one thing. Then she said, again, I'm from North Carolina, please excuse that. Um, she said, when we leave, I don't want uh, Jack and Sue to say, leave and party, my mom and my dad, or welcome back here because you and the youngest have better never come again. You see, and I thought, I would be a new And so I started to sit on my hands. I remember sitting on the bench in the hallway. I remember sitting on my hands because I was afraid I'd touch something. And if I touch something, I'd get in trouble. If somebody walked by and said, You want something to drink? I said, No, ma'am, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm just fine. Did you use that? Oh, no, ma'am, I'm fine. I had to pee so bad at first. You know, I had to get in recovery from my sponsor to teach me it was okay to go to the bathroom. And you know the first question I remember asking my mom when we got in the car, did I do okay, mom? Did I, did I do okay? You see, to me, doing fine stuff was making me fine. I was in a meeting in 1988 with a guy named Joe. I've been sober about five or six months. And he said, alcoholism. See, we talked about this. Alcoholism is a disease characterized by pyramiding thoughts. You know, six months of sobriety, that sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> you know, I could hang my hat on that one, Robert. I mean, you know, let me talk to this guy after the, after the meeting. And I said, what does that mean? He said, it's an upside-down pyramid. And he just goes like this. Right in the middle of my brain is for the first time someone explained that fear I felt sitting in that bench. Because here's how it works. As an adult, be sitting in my office, you know, 30 years old, got a job. Boss walks by, 10 o'clock in the morning. Morning, Don, how you doing? He doesn't speak. Here it goes. Right here. And I look at him and he goes, Don, Don. And he walks on by. First off, he didn't speak to me. Second off, he must be upset with me. Third off, well, that report I turned in yesterday, he didn't like that report. Fourth off, I'm sitting at my desk. Fourth off, we got a meeting at 2 o'clock and he's probably going to fire me. 
Ten o'clock and five. I'm fine. How are you? Ten o' one and five. I haven't moved. Nobody has come into my office. It's been me and me. It's like Jack asked down in Louisville said, if my mind's a dangerous, like a bad neighborhood, I best not go in there alone. <laughs> but I just, I kept going in there alone. <laughs> and I'd get real trouble because then I'd start a pyramidal common pyramid. I'd go, well, if you're going to fire me at two o'clock, I've got to go down to Ray Avenue to the unemployment office and file for unemployment. Now I've got in the employment line, never been there before. How do what I have to do? What I have to fill out? You know, I have to have a driver's license. And then I'm going to go by the Marita Bread, another pyramid. I'm going to go by the Marita Bread, a bread store and buy Dale bread. I can't afford bread anymore. <laughs> a living in technicolor. Ten o'clock, I'm fine. Let me regroup here. Ten o'clock, I'm fine. Ten o' one, I'm fired. Ten o' one and a half, I'm in an unemployment line. In ten o' two, I'm in a bread line trying to buy used bread. Because my family is starving. Now here's the funny part about this story. In my experience, is that if somebody walks in during this process, like going from unemployment to bread, they say, good morning, David, how are you doing? And guess what I'd say? Well, I'm fine, how are you doing? Guess <laughs> what doing great, thank you so much. Life just treating me like a bed of roses. I'm going to get fired today. But other than that, I'm doing real well. Thank you. Thank you. You see what I understand is that's my disease. I didn't know that. You see, I've only, only did it with stuff like that. You get up in the morning, take a shower. Got a little red pimple right here on my calf. Little red pimple. Go get in the shower, come out, sit down, you know, draw. Ready to put my socks on. Look down at that red pimple. Got a little circle around it now. It looks a little bit larger than when I got in the shower. It's just right here on my calf. But here it goes. Wonder what that is on my leg. I didn't see it there yesterday. Looks like it's infected. It's a tumor. It's a tumor. They have to cut my leg off right here. No, they'll probably cut it off right up here. I got to get a prosthesis. Tuesday morning, 7 o'clock, I'm fine. Taking a shower. 7.05, I'm working on a prosthesis. Welcome to my world. I thought I only did it with bad things. I was humming a country western tune one morning in the shower. I don't know why my life was going along pretty well at that time, but I was humming this country western tune. I got out of the shower, shaving, and the next conscious thought I had was, where am I going to get a tour bus? <laughs> and for those of you who haven't ventured down claim to fame and celebrity status, here at thinking, let me take you there. Hmm, I'm humming. First thought, that sounds pretty good. I bet I could practice a little bit and sing in the country western group here in North Carolina. And then if I get real good, we could travel out to Nashville and sign a contract with an agent. Start going on, you know, playing out there and then go on tour and I'll need a group us. That's right. It makes sense. It makes real good sense. Under a form, see, here's the key. 
while I was out there, I got more afraid than
You see, I take my beers and I swap them in here and I take a bottle of wine and put it in my back pocket and I walk hot back to my bathroom and leave my family because I couldn't face them. That person God created me to be, when I started to drinking, I did crazy things. I did not intend to do those things. Jim said that tonight. I didn't intend to get drunk. I didn't intend to wake up in someone else's house. I didn't intend to lose my car and couldn't find it for three days. I didn't intend that. I didn't intend to drive from Atlanta to Raleigh, North Carolina, a nine-hour trip, and not remember leaving Atlanta. I didn't intend that. I didn't intend getting up every day with a hangover and going and doing the eye test. You know what the eye is? I'd look at the front of my car for blood and hair. I'd look at the back of my car, and I'd look for dents, and I'd sit in, the, uh, in my car and look over the visor and in the glove box, and I'd look, reach under the seat, and I'd check in my pockets and on the dresser and in my wallet, and I didn't see a ticket. i say, thank God. You see, as I did those things, I shredded dignity from the person God created me to And my jackal became mostly tired. And now I had to drink to overcome and forget what I did as an outcome of my drinking. And that process, that cycle, is what I got to In the last six and a half years, I started earlier every day with full justification of why I had to drink earlier. Full justification. And I had a good enabling secretary that vodka and diet Pepsi looked pretty good on my desk at 2 o'clock. Didn't taste very good, but it looked like diet Pepsi. And I had to be fine. You see, even in my suicide, I couldn't do it. You know why? I couldn't, I couldn't tie the rope right. I couldn't tie the rope on my left ankle and throw those 55 pound cinder blocks over it that somebody would think I threw them over as an anchor in a little 14 foot jumbos and that the rope got caught on my ankle and jerked me in and I died. And I would, I would sit there drunk planning on what I was going to be after I died. You know, this pyramid stuff is really real. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's like I've got this bubbling going up and my, my lungs are burning and I'm all of a sudden taking my life and I'm laying in a casket and I'm looking up and there are hands coming by and they say things like, poor David, if he hadn't married the woman he married, he'd have been a good man. <laughs> poor David. If he didn't have those two children just sucking him dry he had to work so hard, he'd have had a good life. Poor David. And after three or four such four days, I'd come back and realize that I, got, I, couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And I'd have to come back. Hundreds of forms of fear. Hundreds of forms of self-delusion. I deluded myself into thinking that I was a dignified, decent human being that only had some people that they could just get out of my life. I would be fine. When I did my eight-step list, <laughs> I, uh, want to go through this 100 forms of self-pity, because I was talking to you about that. I did my fourth step. Let me throw there. I had to do what happened, or who it was, my mom. What happened? She kicked me when I was 12 years old, kicked me off my belly left. What did it, uh, what did 13, you know, 13, what did it affect me? Physical, security, sense of self-worth, you know, that, and then the next page in the Facebook is a real ringer. <laughs> it's what was my part in it. The fourth column. <laughs> and I didn't like the fourth column. <laughs> it was their problem. I mean, my gosh, look what that lady just did to me. I have every right. <laughs> I was I came home one night and it was about uh, 
7.30 on Friday. And I called my first boss, Keith, and many of you first Keith, he's just a great person. I called Keith, I said, Keith, you know what my boss said to me this afternoon when I was leaving office? He said, no. He said, what did he say to you? I said, he told me that that project I turned in, he's, he's well upset about it. We have to meet Monday morning. He's probably going to fire me. See, I'm all way out here. Now. And he said, uh, so let me ask you a question, Dave. I said, what? He said, uh, when do you think he's going to let this guy? Do? I said, I don't know. What, what do you suggest? He said, well, you can hold on to it all night and really destroy the only Friday night you got this week that you're going to celebrate the work you've done and that you can rest with your family. He said, you can hold on all night and destroy it. He said, you can maybe hold on till 9 o'clock in the morning, Saturday morning, and just blow your Friday night up. He said, of course, if you want to go for a little gusto, why don't you hold it till 6 o'clock Saturday? Just keep dealing with it, thinking about it. Just stay upset. Just stay upset. Now, this guy's out to get you. Just stay upset. And uh, so 6 o'clock Saturday, he's in there, of course, if you really want to mess up your Saturday night, too. Just go to 10 o'clock. Though. Just take a time, 10 o'clock. Okay, 10.35. He said, now, of course, if you really want to do this weekend up right, he said, why don't you just hold on to it till Monday morning when you get back to work? You see, I couldn't fill out the fourth column. I just got to third. I could tell you what they, who they were, and I could tell you what they did to me. Gory details or gory details. You see, that event where my mother kicked me off a bike when I was 13 years old, it lasted maybe a minute, but by the time I was 40, it was one month of my life. It destroyed the 13th year. It was that big. <laughs> it was big. It was big. And he then asked me a question. He said, David, what do you get out of being a victim? And I said, Keith, I don't get anything out of being a victim. He said, you must. You keep doing it to yourself. And he slammed the phone down. So I called him back. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He said, don't you understand the inventory you did on the seven deadly sins in step six? What you're doing is using those pride, greed, lust, envy, false jealousy. You've got to use those because those are your tools of power because you're a victim. And you're getting something from it. And you've got to figure it out. If you don't, you're going to get drunk. Because it's too painful. I said, what i got to do is to do the fourth column. And so I had to do that. You see, here's the key. What I realized, I had to do an inventory of what it was to be a victim. I had the inventory of what I got from it and what I gave up with it. And what I got from it, I had to go through the seven deadly sins and inventory of what they gave to me and what they took from me. And what they gave me was a sense of power. Ego, greed, lust, power, man. I don't I want power. I want that Nancy Tammy stuff. Give me power. And what it took from me is it stripped another piece of fabric from my dignity as a human being. When I finished my fifth step, he said, is that all? Is that all you've done? <laughs> Having all of this to you. I said, yeah, that's all I, I think that's all I did. He said, if that's all then, he put his shoulders around, his hands around my shoulders and he looked at me. He said, David, if that's all, welcome back into the human race. You've been gone for a long time. 
I didn't know that's what was going on. I didn't know it was my entry back into the dignity and the dignified relationship that I had torn away one thing that mostly under intoxication of alcohol. Mostly there. But then I started when I was sober, I was doing great things too to destroy my life and my relationship. So I said, what is my part? And what I realized my part is, and this is important, if I do not have a part in my resentment, this is the second inventory I did in the fourth step. First was fear, second is resentment, third was sex. So that's the rest of the past. And I had to write it. He said, but in these resentments, if you don't have a part, you're screwed. I would have to live this way for the rest of my life. You see, if I don't have a part in resenting my mother for picking me, or resenting this, and I could write you a book, detail by detail, the abuse, the sexual abuse, the physical, I could do all of that. But it did not take away the fact that I was destroying myself because I couldn't get past being the victim in order to live. Live. And I think the thing for me in my fourth and fifth step and that fourth column work in my sixth and seventh, because it all came through that whole process of steps, it just didn't happen neatly in order, is I had to understand that I had to be sick and tired. And was I really ready to go on with a life of the person that God created that I left back there, that I had forgotten? Am I okay to go on? Is that little boy and be okay, really? And not be afraid of going to the bathroom, really? Am I ready to do that as an adult member and a sober member of this, of this fellowship? With my sponsors helping people in groups who love me and tell me that I'm okay. Am I willing to take that scary, frightening step to be me? You can that and if I don't get to that point, if I don't get to that moment, I'm not in recovery. I still struggle. And so I said to Keith, the price I pay is I give up this. As long as I'm a victim, I must live in crisis. That's the price I pay. He asked me, how is it going, Liz? And I, you know, I won't say that I've got a 10% raise. And my job's doing well. I'll tell you what's wrong with my job. You see, because I can't give up my victim. I mean, I gotta have a little crisis brewing here. Because see, as long as you know I'm hurting Bill, you know, you know, you're gonna feel sorry because he's still feeling sorry for me with my power. But just to be, to be, to be present, to be okay, I've never known that. To be in one with a power greater than me, understanding there's, there's a path. And, and I'll say to Keith, Keith, you say, come to believe, David. Pray for God to give you strength and courage uh, to, to take take the next step. Just do God's will. I said, I don't know God's will. He said, that's okay. I said, but what am I supposed to do if I don't know it? He said, just walk forward. I said, but what if I hit a wall? He said, turn left. And keep walking. And if you hit a wall again, turn right. He said, it doesn't matter. Ask for God and believe. That that power greater than you will see that wall and help you know left or right. Can you understand that that power is with you right now? You see, I could not because I was a 
My victimhood was my power. My resentment of those people. You see, when I didn't make that list, I had to list the people I resented. And guess what? The first 15 people I made that list. The people I had harmed. I guess who I resented? God. God had done his part. <laughs> if they did just talk to my mother, <laughs> you know, gotten her straightened out, I'd have a better life. <laughs> you know how it worked. It was my mother, my father. Now catch who this is that I resented, that I felt victimized by. My mother, my father, my brother, my sister. My sister-in-law, my brother-in-law. My niece. My other brother-in-law, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law. And a gal named Betty Jo at work. What I sexually gave up by my victimhood is I had to live in crisis, and sexually I gave up intimate, personal, connected relationship with the closest people in my life. And I justified it every day. Every day. Every day. She said, when I got to make that list, she said, uh, my mother lived 65 miles from me. I never saw her. I just, I didn't want to. I drive up there. You never want to see mother. You go up there in 10 minutes. You're so angry you had to leave. <laughs> what I'm doing here. <laughs> well, it's been nice. I got to go. You just bite your lip all the way out the door. Oh, man. I was in treatment, and Clara, Clara G was my counselor. She's a, a lovely lady. She said, why are you so angry? It's about the third day. They let you kind of hit the jack for two days. <laughs> and she said, why are you so angry? I said, me? Are you, are you talking to me? <laughs> I'm fine. And she said, no, you're not. You're angry. I, I, you know, the group jumped on me how they do. You know, you're lying to us. You're lying yourself. You know. And then she said, what are you angry with? And I said, I'm angry with my mother. <laughs> and she said, what did she do? And I never told any one person all the things she did. I told different people at the bar different things she did. Everybody with me? And if you got down on my mother too much, I said, wait a minute. She's a nice person. <laughs> I just... I just we have to keep the family fine. If I fine, your family's fine. You can't go too deep there now. You're meddling now. Back off. <laughs> but I told my group everything. And you know what my counselor said to me? <laughs> she said, David, I'm in a detox ward on the third floor of a hospital in Milwaukee. <laughs> I've been on Valium for 22 years. You paint pills for 22 years. You drank for 22 years. I mean, I did it all. And I was a mess. Checked in, my blood pressure was 70 over uh, 120 over 60, I believe it was. Two days later, it was 250 over 180. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Couldn't walk, grand mal seizures. Couldn't go to anywhere by myself. I had to have a nurse with me. This went on for two weeks. And I had to, my, my pulse rate was, you know, about triple. And it was just like my chest was going to explode and my head was going to explode. And it was a, it was a pretty rough time. In fact, I'll never forget, the third night I was there, I had this pain start right in the back. Excuse me, detox. I was just reading a book, and it's about detox. It's really a good book. Brought back a lot of memories. But I was laying there, and this little steam, like a thousand needles starting to base of my spine, and came up my spine, and came up and exploded in my head. And I got up, and my left side wouldn't work. <laughs> I couldn't walk. And I was, I was dragging my foot along, and I was walking down the wall, you know, trying with one hand. I got to the water cooler. It was a big deal of how I was going to get over this water cooler. To get to the nurse's station, I had a button right beside me, but I got to walk up there and let them know I'm okay. And so I walked up there, and I get to the nurse's station, never get her name was Wanda. And I said, Wanda, I got this, you know, knee thing. You know, and I can't, I can't. And she smiled. She said, Congratulations, Mr. Lloyd, you're finally feeling your body after 22 years. And I could have strangled her. 
<laughs> oh my gosh, what a night. I was going through that. I just want to put you in context of what I was going through when she said, why are you so angry? And I was fine in group. So I was fine in group. I couldn't set up straight, but I was fine. <laughs> she said, she said, she said, why are you so angry? And I said, she did this, this, and this, and this, you know. And finally she looked at me and she smiled. She said, David, where's your mother right now? And I said, I don't know, Claire. It's nine o'clock in the morning. She said, where is she? I said, she's in Barnard, North Carolina. She said, so what do you, what do you think she had for uh, breakfast this morning? I don't know. She said, well, what would you want? I said, okay, two eggs over easy, country ham, grits, toast, strawberry jelly, orange juice, and coffee. She said, David, by the way, what did you have here in detox this morning for breakfast? I said, well, Claire, I couldn't, I couldn't eat. I was a little upset, a little nauseated. Smoked too much last night. I just, I couldn't, you know, cough a little bit. She said, David, what do you think your mother had for dinner last night? She said, well, what do you think I said? I don't know. That's fried chicken, potato salad, green beans. She said, so what did you have here in detox for dinner last night? I said, I wasn't good to eat. Claire was a little upset. Your little stomach upset. And I was a little, a little fidgety and a little dirty. And I, she said, so what do you think your mother's doing right this red hot second? I'll never forget that term, this red hot second. I said, Oh, she's retired. She's 69. She's probably watching TV or soap opera. I'm visiting with a friend. And she said something very, very important to pull me back to here's the key. My recovery has had to take me from Jekyll out here to Hyde, who I've created. In my delusion, my fear, my self-seeking, and my victimhood, my self-pity, and it pulls me back to me. And she said, David, where are you right now? See, that's one of those moments. But I had to look with me right now. The benchmark for me right now. And I said, I'm sitting in a damn treatment center trying to kill myself. <laughs> I said, didn't say it quite that way. I was pretty successful. And she said, David, it seems to me that your mother's life is going along pretty well. And it seems to me that you're killing yourself. And she said, are you ready to try to change? And I said, how do I change it? She said, you must agree to pray for your mother every day for the next three weeks, what you want for yourself. Now, I want to do a lot for my mother, praying is not one of them. Being very candid with you. And she, I said, what do I pray? She said, what do you want? And I said, I want to be happy, sober, and free. I want to be free of fear. She said, pray that for your mother. And I, I had to pray that. She said, if you don't, I cannot help you. No human can help you because you will stay out there. Because you've got to deal with this within you. And so I agreed to pray. I prayed in the shower with the shower running. I flushed the toilet before I got in the shower. Somebody would hear me. But I did it before I got through the night flush. And after two weeks, she said, Have you prayed for your mother? And I said, Yes, she said, Pray. We just pray every day for the next two weeks. I stayed there three and a half months praying two weeks at a time for my mother and for my two children. When I left, she looked at me. She said, Go home, don't fix your family. Learn to enjoy and pray for your mother. When I got to my eight step list, back to that, about a year and a half later, uh, my sponsor, Keith, said, uh, When's the last time you talked to your mother? And I said, uh, Been a while. <laughs> and he, I said, Every time I go up there, I just get this churning inside. You know what? It's like a vacuum cleaner. She's got this vacuum cleaner hooked to my inside, sucking them out of it. It's like, 
That's the way I felt. It was like, ooh, I gotta get, I get nauseated. So he taught me some things. He said, when you go into your house, put furniture between you and your mother. If she walks over to you, because there was some abuse involved, you, he said, just, just step behind the chair and put something. If you want, if you want to talk, talk at a table and you put your hands on the table and know that you're okay. He helped me to learn language. Just not debate my mother, but to say, you know, you could be right. You know, mom, you could be right. That same story you told me for 35 years wrong, you could be right. <laughs> no, you didn't hit me with the baton. You could be right. But I learned that. Part of my prayer. Help me to be able to say, you could be right. He said that day step was for me to grow up and to start acting like an adult. And he said, if I didn't stop acting like a child, people would never speak up treat, stop treating me like a child. I was very offended with that. I was 43 years old. He said, and most of you're a child because you've lived as a victim most of your life and you've never grown up. And I said, what do I have to do to be an adult? He said, write your mother. I said, I don't have anything to say. He said, I didn't ask you if you had anything to say. Go get a card. And I had to go to Eckridge Drugstore and buy Miley Faith card. And I, had, I said, what do I say? And he said, write, dear mom, thinking of you, David. And I said, but I'm thinking bad thoughts. <laughs> he said, that's okay. She doesn't know that. You see, my victims and my battles are so personal. If they didn't know I was fighting them, how could they be a fighter? What a, what a revelation that was. And so I sent the card. I said, this lady said, you hear from your mother? I said, no. He said, write another card. I said, what do I say? He said, write the same card, same smiley face. Did you buy two or three? I said, yeah, about four. He said, Right, dear mom, thinking of you, David. I mailed it again. Guess what happened? She sent me a letter back and said, Dear David, that you're thinking of me every day. I didn't say that. <laughs> I've been thinking of you too. And she cut out this cartoon. I, I told like Donald Duck is a talent that I did as a kid. And she brought this little cartoon of Donald Duck and and you know, that was cute, and I, I smiled. And guess what I did? I wrote her back. And guess what she did? She wrote me back. And guess what I did? I wrote her back. And guess what she did? She wrote me back. I don't know if you know what it feels like to hate somebody so bad that it consumes your soul and your fabric and your fiber. And to be able to see a possibility of being free from that. That bondage of self. Powerful. So I went to see her. Didn't stay long, so we talked. On my fourth sobriety birthday, I took her to Washington. My dad had died, and she wanted to go back where they had dated as a couple in Cherry Blossoms in the spring of, of uh, 92. And we rode up Interstate 95 in the car, my mom and I. Catch this. I was now 40. 44 years old, we had never been together, just the two of us, in our life. And we rode to Washington, and she said, David, when I was 10 years old, I burned a biscuit in the wood-burning stove, and your grandfather, my her dad, and she called him Papa. Papa took a tobacco stick and beat me, and she said, do you know what it feels like to be so frightened that you're not going to do things right?
We were sitting in the hotel room, and she was saying that old story about Vatan again, the 35-year story. <laughs> and I prayed about that story, and everything and every fiber in me, in my self-delusion, my self-seeking, my self-pity, everything wanted me to say, Mother, I've heard that dumb story. Why don't you shut up? what I want to say. And what came out of my mouth was nothing. And I watched this 73-year-old woman so frightened. I saw her fear for the first time and I saw that she was so frightened of being there with me and she did not know what to say to her. That's what I saw. I saw me in her. I saw my fear in her. And I know exactly where I got it. Went to see my mom last Saturday. She's now uh, in an assisted living facility. She's 84. And she doesn't know me anymore. And that's been quite a, a different relationship to go in. And, and she called me her baby brother the other day. She said, there's my baby brother. And she was telling me about her grandmother who died 30 years ago living down the street. And my grandfather built the home she's down in. She's living 50 years ago. And, and so, you know, there's a neat thing is that I'm free to see her, where she is, who she is. And I was able with her open heart surgery to hold her hand and wash her feet and do not give up those moments of intimacy that I cut myself off from and I became so alone and so frightened that I had to become a different person just about that. And alcohol was a part of it because it took me to a fourth dimension away from my reality. You see, I don't have any more regrets about my mom. And I can be her baby brother, she says. And that's fine. And she tells me about how her aunt's living out the window, and that's fine. It's just fine. If that makes her happy, but see, my prayer has been for 15 and a half years every day. God, please help my mother to have peace, joy, sobriety, and love. And I really wish that for her because I want it for me. What I understand is I can't get it until I give it or at least wish it. I have to wish it. I have to. But I can't get it. I can't receive it. It can be offered all day. But I will not receive it because of the bondage of self that I'm in with my disease. In April of 88, uh, I had done some real stupid things in my life, made some very bad decisions. I was married, but we're certainly not honoring that marriage in multiple ways. And I took my 13-year-old son. I started using my children as a way to escape so I could drink. Bad situation. I took my son down to the beach, and we're out in a little 18-foot boat in pretty big seas in the ocean uh, when we went out that morning. I drank so much, truly. I don't know how much I drank. I was thinking that the other day because this was another moment, that reality of David, where's your mother, where are you? The moment of my reality that hit me, and I think this was my final link. I don't know that I could have gotten back if this link hadn't occurred, but I was so drunk I couldn't get out of the boat when we got back. I couldn't I couldn't get out of the boat. I mean, I couldn't climb on the dock. And my son was 13 years old, and he was trying to drag me onto the dock, and it's just us down at the beach by ourselves. And He'd been driving the boat all day. Nice to have a 13-year-old out in the ocean. 
<coughs> driving a boat while his dad's bomb. And I said to him in my best superfied voice, let's go to dinner. And Will Robinson drive him 17 miles to a beach to eat seafood. And I couldn't crawl out of the boat onto the dock. And he looked up at me with this unbelievable, beautiful face and blue eyes with terror in his eyes. And I had never seen the terror. And he said, Dad, I can't ride with you. Mother made me promise that if you were drinking, I would not get in the car with you. And I said, God, I'll come on. What are you going to do if I'm drinking tomorrow and we're going back? And he pulled out a quarter. And he said, Mother made me promise that if you were drinking tomorrow, that I'd go to the payphone and call her collect and she would drive three hours to pick me up. And I saw that moment, that miracle of healing. I saw the terror. And I saw that the hide I had become was not the Jekyll that I am. I saw that the person I had become in my resentment, in my fear, in my self-delusion, in my self-pity, I saw all of that. And I knew that wasn't me. I felt distant. Because I felt absolutely ashamed for the person I was for that 13-year-old. And I went into treatment four days later. And I didn't, if I could not connect, I don't know that I'd ever gotten there. But I was not far enough out that I couldn't get back. I've been home three days, and uh, my oldest son was 17, six foot five, tackled on the football team, about 235, big guy. And uh, when I left to go to treatment, I made my family promise that nobody would know where I was. And they would tell everybody I was on a long business trip. Made up all kinds of stories. I was in Indiana, part of it. I didn't get to Ohio, but I was in Indiana. And I had my family lying. And I had to deal with that about the second week in treatment and say, tell them where I am. I understand that I'm, I have a disease and I'm going to try to get better. My son was very angry, knocked holes in the walls, just walked down and punched holes in our walls. and So depressed he couldn't function. I got home and my counselor said, enjoy your family, don't fix them. And I've been praying for my son because I was scared to death of them. Please hear what I just said. I was scared to death of my 17 and 13 son. I didn't know how to be a parent. Didn't read the book. Didn't buy the book on being parents. I just knew I was trying to do something and never worked out. And so uh, it was about 4 o'clock on Monday morning, going back to work for the first time. I didn't know if I had a job, Jim. <laughs> I'd been gone three and a half months. I didn't know if they fired me. They said they would hold my job, but I didn't know for sure until I got back there. And there was a lot of gossiping going on about me. Scared to death, couldn't sleep. And my son had the TV and stereo going wide open. So I walked in at about 4 and 1. I said, David, would you turn the, the, the stereo down? And see, I'd learned all this in treatment. You know, I used my best treatment motif. I said, son, when the stereo is this loud, I feel very frightened and anxious. And I say I taught, learned to, to understand my to state my feelings and then my needs. And I need, therefore, I need for you to cut the TV down. He looked up at me and he yelled. He said, "I'm not going to cut it down, and you can't make me." <laughs> and so I said, "No, I don't think you understood my feelings." <laughs> True story. This is about four in the morning. And uh, let me tell you, because you see, I came out of treatment just coming to believe that there would be a power greater than me and restore us all the sanity in this family and this whole thing in my life and. And, and all of a sudden, I just had to do that. And so I went back at it again. And he jumped up. And he came over. And he started punching me in the chest. He was calling, he's calling at me. He's just, you can't make me. You can't make me. You don't own this house. You don't own me. And then he yelled as loud as anybody. He said, you 
point blank alcoholic, you've destroyed my life. Get out of it. Now, I called myself an alcoholic for about three and a half months at meetings, but no member of my family had. And so I went back to my, like a little dog, <laughs> called my sponsor, <laughs> 4.30, Keith, I wake you up. You know what my, you know what my son just called me? I said, what? He said, he called me an alcoholic. And he said, well, aren't you? I said, well, yeah. He said, well, he just called you what you are. He said, uh, I said, but he was yelling at me, punching me in the face. He was just punching my chest. He said, well, you punching him? I said, yeah, I got a punch in I said, he's trying to own this house. He's trying to own this property. He said, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to hang up the phone. Go in there. Is he still in there? I said, he's still in there. Go in and say, David, look at him. Stay about four feet away and say, David, I'm very sorry I yelled at you, and I'll try not to do that again. Could I have permission to hug you? Keith, I am so sorry that I woke you up. <laughs> I don't know if you have been sorry to wake your sponsor up. I was real sorry. I really appreciate it, Keith. Thank you so much, and I'll, I'll talk to you later. You know, I handle stuff like that. Fear, self-delusion, self-seeking. You know, you, have, you go in there and you say, it's my house. It's, you know, I had to claim my property. It's my TV. I bought those clothes on your back. I mean, I had to, you know how I handle it? I wouldn't speak to him for two weeks. I'd walk down the hall and he'd walk towards me and I wouldn't even look him in the face. He'd say, good morning, Dad, and I'd just walk on like he didn't exist. We'd be sitting at the dinner table. See, i got to get control back. This is about control here. And he would they'd pass me the, the, the potatoes and I would hand the potatoes and they'd almost get to his hand and I'd put them down and not look at them. You see, I've got to control the thing. That's how I've lived my life. And the only way I could get out of the pain of that control need, that victim control need, was to drink and get a few hours rest. And do it again tomorrow. And tomorrow. So I got my shower and went to work. I was the first one there. I was there at 530. I didn't speak to him on the way out of the house. I was going to show him who's in charge. Can y'all catch the parody and the irony of this whole? That's the way I lived my life. I thought I was in charge. And what I found when I got to that office was an explosion in my gut. I can't tell you any other way. And what I knew, by the grace of God, the miracle of healing had started, that if I didn't go home and do what my sponsor suggested, I would have to go break into the chairman board's locker and steal his vodka again. I knew that. And so I went home. His son up, it was about 6.15. My son was walking down by the lake, angry. And I walked over to him and I said, David, I'm sorry I yelled at you. And I'll try not to do that again. And he wheeled and looked at me like I was an absolute stranger. For in fact, I was. And I said, may I have permission to hug you, son? And he went, what? <laughs> I said, can I hug you? Yeah. <laughs> and I walked over and hugged him. It was like hugging this podium. He was, he was, he was rigid. And I couldn't touch him. You know, I had to. And as I put my arms around him and stood there and closed my eyes, I thought, my sponsor is full of bull. <laughs> I've said the two things he told me. And now I've got to put my tail between my legs legs, and go back to my car and go back to the office because I've lost control of my house forever. 
That's what I was thinking. And at that moment, I started to let him go. And just at that moment, he grabbed me and he hugged me and he wept. And he told me how sorry he was for calling me what he did. And how proud he was of me trying to change my life. And how he wanted to support me and how much he loved me. And I hugged him and told him how sorry I was that I was not there for him, even though I live in that house most days, that I wasn't there emotionally. There was not a moment of my life that I was not affected by my disease. Not a moment for 22 years. And I was very, very sorry. And I asked him, could we possibly start over? And we did. David and I started over. My youngest son, Scott, we didn't start over. He's pretty angry with me. It took eight years. Eight years. My wife and I could never start over. And we separated divorce four years ago. We just never, we never could get past the past. We never could get to the current. We just couldn't. We tried. The neat thing, as I was eight years into this deal, my youngest son, I had to ask him to leave my home. Police issues, drinking, tickets, rest, just pretty sad. Destroying himself. And what can you do but love and pray every day? And he came out to me, and he was very angry with me one afternoon, and I was watching the sunset. And I said, you know, Scott, we were traveling together, and I said, we probably, I'll never be here again, promise. And I would like to enjoy this moment of watching the sunset. And I know that you're very upset with me. You have been for a long time now. But if you want to be upset right now in the next 30 minutes until dark, would you please go to your room in the hotel and be upset, or walk across the parking lot, or walk over there, but right here in this space, I would like to find some peace and watch the sunset. If you want to join me, I'd love to have you. But if you can't join me in peace, then please go somewhere else and, and be angry. And he left. And he came back just at sundown. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, you and David started over. Could we start over too? Yeah. We can begin to become the people. You see, this is about, and this is so important. I called Keith that morning. I said, I hugged my, my son, and here's what he said. And David thanked him. He got on the phone, and then he said the most important words. He said, David, I'm going to talk to you. And so my son left, and he said, now, David, I want you from this moment on to stop being their parent. I said, what? I am their father. He said, no. He said, you don't understand. You're not mature enough to be their father. And what you are doing is taking their dignity from them like what has happened to you. And your job is to now sponsor them from this moment on. You do not give them any advice to 13 and 17 year olds unless they ask for it. And I said, but they'll never ask me for anything. They don't want to hear what I've got to say. He said, isn't that wonderful? That part of your life's over. <laughs> Can't get by this sponsor. And so I've tried that now. For 15 years. I don't do it well someday. Please hear that part. But as much as I can, I try to let them understand that they are okay. Because if they understand that, they will have their own sense of dignity of who they are. And I can't take that from them. I have to give them that right. And that's what my recovery has been about. Is to undo in step four and five. To write it down to admit it. We try to let go of those defects of character in six and seven and humbly ask God, it's beating me up, can you help me not be a victim? Can you help me? In eight and nine to go back and become the adult. 
and write a letter to do the right thing, if appropriate, in step nine. In step ten, to keep seeking guidance. Asking for his will today. This life I've had is uh, been a remarkable thing that I never, ever thought I would have. I'm not without pyramid thinking someday. But you know what I've learned? People have asked me this after I speak. I've learned to write my pyramid down and I land. Just take a piece of paper and you go, the tour bus. Oh, okay. I got it. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. Adam. I'm president of the company. I'm okay, okay, I'm not going to get fired. Okay, I got it. Okay. What I've got to learn and what this, this 12-step program, uh, Max J is my sponsor now, and I'm a member of good standing of the Living in the Now group. That's a very good group for me to belong to. <laughs> and it's a step study meeting. I've always been, my home group's always been a step study. My sponsor required that, that I couldn't go to just discussion. I had to go to step studies, and they have been, help, been so helpful to me. But we do it at 8 o'clock in downtown Cary, North Carolina, if you're ever down. Living in the Now on Oak Street. and love to have you. Uh, but it's at 8 o'clock. We start early. And get real serious about ourselves. But it's a wonderful group because as I've walked through, here's what I've learned in this recovery thing. I thought I had to, to recover, I had to give everything up at one time. It's like, <laughs> hey, I'm fine now. <laughs> what I have learned by the grace of God. Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is 12 steps and by wonderful sponsorship who's loved me in spite of me and by people in rooms like you. Uh, I've learned this. Because there was a time I had to let go of what happened at 12 when my mother kicked me off of a bike. I had to admit I was powerless over that. I had to come to believe that there was a power greater than me that would restore me to sanity about that event and let me let it go. But I would make a decision to turn my will and my life over around that, that memory, that hurt, that pain, to a power greater than me. I didn't know how to do it at that moment, but I was going to make the decision. And what I've learned is the decision is only that I'm now agreeable to four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. That's the only decision I've made, is I'm going to walk forward here with this issue. And I'm going to inventory it. And I'm going to get on my knees and admit it to God. I'm going to look at my my fears in it, my resentments in it, my sexual activity in it. I'm going to get on my knees and hit it to God. I'm going to submit it to myself in a mirror, and I'm going to sit down with my sponsor and read it to him. And I'm going to become part of the human race about that issue again. And I'm going to look at my defects that caused that, my part in it, step six and seven of the resentment, my anger, my resentment, my greed, my lust, my self-pity. I'm going to look at that and realize that my price is too great. And that is what I'm going to do in step eight with the men. I'm going to go and make amends understanding that I did have a part of this issue. And what I had to understand in my amends and my mother was to give her my time because I took this from her and my attention. And I'm going to do that in step nine and I'm going to pray every day for God's God and look at my inventory every day about that issue with my mother that it comes back. It's a very elastic disease. You push it out there and you think you got it, 
throwing away that goes, ee, 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 oh my god, ee, 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 And then my father said one day if I did that enough, it would stay. And it's my mother and the teeth. There was a day I had to admit that I was powerless over my two sons that I could no longer parent them. I had to come to believe that a power greater than me would help them to a sense of dignity and direction. I had to make a decision about that. I had the inventory. I had to go through my steps. You see, this is like the, the, the monkey. I don't know if you know that South American Indians capture monkeys in very funny ways. They take a large clay pot, it's very heavy, solid clay, and it has a noose neck and a hole, and they put little sweet beans, like jelly beans for you and I, and they'll put it in the middle of an opening. And the, the monkeys are curious, they smell the beans, they go down and they put their hands in and grab a couple of those beans, and guess what? They can't get their fist out. You know those monkeys will stay there all day long holding on to that bean, the only thing they've got to do to be free is let go. They pull their hand out. But they won't until the, the Indians come and club them over the head, knock them unconscious, put them in cages, and sell them down the river. I am like that monkey. I learned that the only way I was going to be okay was to hold on, to figure out, to stay busy, to, I've got, you know, I've got to be more. And that pain the only thing I found in my life that took it away were my seven deadly sins and alcohol. And it did. Until alcohol turned on me. Thank you for letting me share my experiences. It's great to be back after eight years and see some great uh, people that we had breakfast and lunch and talked about these things. So glad to see you all healthy and doing well. Love you very much. Good night.